Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. One of the great basketball hotbeds is the Louisville, Lexington, and Cincinnati areas. And at one time, Cincinnati played host to a terrific basketball team. A squad that featured the likes of the great Oscar Robertson and Jerry Lucas. But, for whatever reason, the team never really caught on. And after 15 years in the Queen City, it moved on to Kansas City. Next on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of the brief history of the Cincinnati Royals. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes and today, a small change in direction. Actually, a small change in direction for today's episode and for our next episode as well. As we turn our focus to basketball and to what I think are pretty unique stories. Up first, a look back at the lost history of the Cincinnati Royals. And then next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes the story of a team that played a few of its home games in Cincinnati as well, but a team that folded shop much to the disappointment of its loyal fans, the Kentucky Colonels from the old American Basketball Association, the ABA. Of course, along the way, in both episodes, we'll also talk about some of the stars from these teams, including the legendary Oscar Robertson, who played for the Royals, and Jerry Lucas, who also played for the Royals, but both are probably, well, they're both probably better known for their contributions to other teams, teams they led to the NBA championship. And then there's Hall of Famer Bob Cousy, who played a large role in the Royals' departure from Cincinnati. In just a bit, Jerry Schultz, who wrote the book, Cincinnati's Basketball Royalty, A Brief History a look back at 15 years of Cincinnati Royals NBA basketball. He'll join us to talk more about the Cincinnati Royals. First, though, just a reminder that you can learn more about our guests and the subjects we talk about by visiting our website, sportsfh.com. There you'll find links to stories, stats, videos, and more about the teams and stars we talk about. And you can learn more about our guests as well. And please click on their links to see how you can order the great books our author guests have written. Check out the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. As always, please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever it is you get your podcasts, leave us a five-star rating. Write a review. We'd love to hear from you and appreciate the positive pub you give us. Speaking of positive pub, one team that didn't get a ton of it was the Cincinnati Royals, especially towards the end of their stay in Cincinnati. 
The Royals actually got their beginning in Rochester as the Rochester Royals, and in just a few moments, Jerry Schultz will dive more into their early days. The Royals joined the NBA in 1948, and they won the championship just a short time later when they defeated the New York Knicks in seven games in 1951. But the Royals and really the NBA outgrew smaller cities like Rochester and needed to relocate. And after a successful exhibition game in Cincinnati, the Royals decided on moving there permanently. Well, they thought it would be a permanent move, and it wasn't. Just 15 years after they set up shop in Cincinnati, they packed up and left for Kansas City. Certainly a big disappointment. So what happened? Why was their stay in Cincinnati so short? Well, here to tell us more about the Royals is the author of the book, Cincinnati Basketball Royalty, A Brief History, A Look Back at 15 Years of Cincinnati Royals NBA Basketball. Jerry Schultz. Hey, Jerry, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us tonight. Oh, my pleasure, man. Hey, let me ask you this. Where does your interest in the Cincinnati Royals come from? The funny thing is, uh, when I first heard of the Cincinnati Royals, it was from games that they were playing in the city of Cleveland before the Cleveland Cavaliers came into existence. Mm. They were the first. NBA team, so to speak, uh, that, that the city was checking out before uh, the Cavaliers were granted as an expansion team to the city in 1970. I, I'm taking it you were a, a, a basketball fan uh, living up there in northern Ohio, and um, mm-hmm. you, you went, I guess, what was it at that time? Was it like the Richfield Coliseum? Was there a civic center there? Where did the Royals come to play in Cleveland? Uh, it was actually before the Richfield Coliseum came into existence. Uh, the facility was called the Cleveland Arena, huh. and uh, it was actually a hockey mecca for the uh, the American Hockey League Cleveland Barons. Uh huh. And they had some arena dates, and uh, uh, the owner of the Cavs had to actually buy the arena. <laughs> uh, in order to get the team, it was a, it was a very interesting story, Nick uh-huh. uh, Maletti. Uh-huh. But uh, the Royals played in the arena and promoted interest in the NBA before the Cavs came along. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit here about the Royals. Where did they get their start? Where were they originally located? And then tell us about each location the franchise has called home since they left Cincinnati. Well, uh that that's a, a very interesting story. Also, um, uh, the Royals actually came into existence in 1945 in Rochester, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the city had a long-running semi-pro team that, uh, for a number of years, was actually called the Seagrams. It was actually named after the uh, the Canadian Distillery Company. Hmm. And even during the prohibition years of the 1930s, they had this team. Hmm. So the, it had a, a, an unusual popularity. Um, why, after, why, why, why the Seagrams and a, a Canadian associated name instead of perhaps, you know, Rochester, I guess, Kodak or something like that is from that mm-hmm. area. Why Seagrams? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, Rochester is a, a Lake Ontario port city. Mm-hmm. And so that had a lot to do with it. Uh, there's a lot of Canadian traffic, or there certainly was in the 1920s and 1930s mm-hmm. when the semi-pro team uh, first came into existence. Mm-hmm. And um, they needed a sponsor. Semi-pro basketball uh, was a sponsored entity, and they needed somebody to float the costs of the team. Mm. So Interesting. Uh, it was a good match for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they were the Rochester Seagrams. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after World War II, uh, there was a circuit that was ambitiously called the National Basketball League. Sure. And it was actually just a bunch of uh, industrial factory teams um, from uh, cities like Akron, Ohio, the Akron Goodyears. And then there were some touring, what they called barnstorming teams like the Oshkosh All-Stars of <laughs> Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And they... These teams had some reputation, so there was a, a small league that sort of allowed these guys to play each other a couple of times a year that came into existence. Mm-hmm. And after World War II, they were looking to expand. And uh, the owners, or, or the managers, I guess you could say, of the Seagrams were interested in jumping into this league, but the sponsors wouldn't go. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And why is uh, that? Why would the sponsors not go? Because uh, the road schedule... Uh, presented some involved costs. Uh, the Rochester Seagrams played a lot of home games. That was sort of one of their appeals. Is it was low overhead, and you hosted a lot of games. People came into town and played the team. But mm-hmm. in a league, you got to play a lot of games on the road, and that wasn't uh, the kind of cost that uh, the sponsor wanted to continue having. So the manager of the team... Lester Harrison, who's a pro basketball legend, Mm -hmm. and his lawyer brother, Jack Harrison, pulled their money together and entered their own franchise in this league. And in 1945, it was $25,000 to get a franchise. That's where the Sacramento Kings that exist today, that's where they were born. Right. $25,000 cost right. of a car today. So um, they uh, actually had a newspaper contest to rename the team. And uh, the winner of the contest was the Royals. It was kind of alliterative. It was a nickname that was well in use back then. Uh-huh. And so uh, the Royals also had the luxury of entering a league which didn't have a formal draft. So they could sign anybody they wanted at a time when a number of star players were just coming out of the Navy and World War II. Hmm. So they ended up with about six Hall of Fame players. Wow. And they won the championship in their very first year of existence. Wow. Wow. And that's in, the, and that's, in, that's in the NBL, not in the NBA. Right. But they did later win an NBA title right. in 1951. Right. So, so, and, and just for the folks listening, the NBL, the National Basketball League, was separate from what was then known as the BAA, the Basketball Association of America. And I don't quite recall what year they merged, but they sort of combined league names and they became the National Basketball Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, they formally became the NBA 
1949. Mm-hmm. But um, but four of the NBL teams had jumped into the league that would be the NBA the previous year. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those teams was the Royals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and when they left Cincinnati, they well they went from Rochester to Cincinnati, and then Cincinnati yes, to Kansas City. And and mm-hmm. when they went to Kansas City, there was a a time where they were like the Kansas City Omaha Kings, I guess, or at some point they be, went from the Royals to the Kings. So they played some games in Kansas City and some games in Omaha, Nebraska, and then ultimately, as you just stated before, they became the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, they were the Kansas City Omaha Kings for three years, mm-hmm. and they played uh, home games in two cities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did the Royals move to Cincinnati from Rochester? You know, the only city in their long history where they played for and won the NBA championship, like you said, in 1951. Why did they move from Rochester to well, Cincinnati? Well, there's really two reasons. Um, the, the first reason is, is that uh, for most of their history, they had a very small arena. Um, uh, Edgar, Edgerton Park Arena, or mm-hmm. they called it, mm-hmm. and it seated forty-two hundred people. <laughs> so, and they packed it. They were a popular team to a certain degree, mm-hmm. but they, uh, when they entered the NBA, they weren't allowed to play the the number of extra exhibition games that they needed to make a profit mm-hmm. because the NBA was a very rigid schedule. Uh, you weren't allowed to play teams in any of the other leagues. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Royals started to lose money. Uh, They did eventually get a larger arena built, but by then the NBA had had a a very difficult time in the early 1950s. Uh, They went through a very difficult stretch where uh, the league fell down to just eight teams. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, they just simply weren't making any money in Rochester. It was actually by about 1956, a pretty desperate situation. They were drawing maybe about 2,500 fans a game. Wow. Wow. And they had a natural rival, too, just across the state. You had the Syracuse Nationals. And there was another Mm -hmm. small team, I think, in uh, Detroit. They were the Fort Mm -hmm. Wayne Pistons before they became the Detroit Pistons. And that's just to name a few of the smaller cities that made up the NBA in the beginning. What was the structure of the league like back then with why such small cities and I guess you uh, really talked to us about the impetus for allowing uh, a team like Rochester to move to a city like Cincinnati because of the size of the arena. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, uh, there was a movement. Uh, The commissioner of the league, uh, Maurice Podoloff, was very serious about presenting a major league image for the league. So Mm -hmm. um, he actually courted a number of cities and tried to pair up franchises with them. Um, Rochester ended up in Cincinnati largely um, uh, with the suggestion of the players themselves that they had. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that later on mm-hmm. with, uh, I believe it's uh, Jack Twyman, and, I, 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 and yeah, I'm sure we, we'll, we'll cover mm-hmm. that. Yeah, for sure. It was uh, an Eastern League um, 
the Midwestern cities like Cleveland, Detroit, even Chicago for a, a very long time, these were hockey cities. Sure. And so uh, they had a very limited uh, interest in professional basketball, even well through the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the teams that, uh, that these Eastern cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia ended up uh, playing were these former NBL teams that had transferred over the Fort Wayne Pistons, <clears throat> the, uh, the Rochester Royals, the Minneapolis Lakers who came over, mm-hmm. the Syracuse Nationals. And that's, that's what the league was for quite a while. Interesting. How did the players feel about leaving Rochester and moving to Cincinnati? Was that something they wanted to do? Was there any attachment to Rochester? Were there sad feelings? Well, the very first Cincinnati Royals team had a really big Rochester influence. And uh, there was some history up there. They had a couple of championships. And there was a concern because it was kind of an Eastern roster um, that they had put together. So, yeah, that actually was a concern. But the Royals were able to to kind of overcome that by creating a lot of interest in the new city. Uh, Cincinnati showed a lot of enthusiasm for them. Hmm. And then the, the Royals had also made a huge move on draft day in 1957 uh, when they picked up a big star named Clyde Lavalette. Right, And so that, that really uh, brought a lot of enthusiasm to coming to the city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about the city of Rochester? I'm sure fans of the Cincinnati Royals can relate to their pain when the Royals mm-hmm. packed up and left for Cincinnati. But um, tell us, did, did, did Rochester try to keep the team? Um, how did the locals react? I mean, how sad was that for the city of Rochester? Uh, when the Royals left, <clears throat> the city of Rochester had a, <clears throat> a hockey team up there called the Americans. Sure, I think they still and exist that, in, 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 in a certain form today. I think a lot of people yeah. might know them as uh, the Amerks, short for the yeah. Americans. Yeah. And so they were in their second year of existence when the Royals left. And their following was, was passionate. Uh-huh. Rochester was, uh, after all, uh, all of this, it, it was a hockey town. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so uh, th- there was a small, passionate group of fans, but uh, Rochester really embraced hockey. And so uh, it was a remarkably easy transition for them, actually. Hmm, interesting. So the Royals leave Rochester, relocate to Cincinnati. What did the city of Cincinnati do to welcome and make Cincinnati a place that the Royals would want to call home? How did Cincinnatians respond to having an NBA team? Well, uh, at the time, it was really remarkable. Um, Cincinnati had actually applied to become the first expansion city in the National Basketball Association. And, And so... Uh, in, in their attempt to market themselves for a franchise, they actually bought a game. And uh, the two teams that, that had the game were uh, the Fort Wayne Pistons and the Rochester Royals. Hmm. And so the Royals were loaded with a number of regionally well-known players. Um, you've already mentioned Jack Twyman, who played at the University of Cincinnati. Right. Uh, there was also Dave Piontek, who played at Xavier. So these are two cities, or, or two stars that were right there in the city. Mm-hmm. 
And then there were uh, players from Dayton, Miami of Ohio, Kentucky, Western Kentucky. All these guys were on the roster. And so uh, it was a remarkably easy sale uh, once the team actually played there for the city to embrace them. Mm -hmm. And and this is sort of like jumping way ahead. Uh, This is one of the things that I find fascinating about the history of the Cincinnati Royals. You have the University of Cincinnati there. You have Xavier there. You're not that mm-hmm. far from Kentucky. Heck, Cincinnati's right on the border of the state of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And it's such a basketball hotbed. How is it possible that a professional basketball franchise is not currently playing in Cincinnati? I don't I don't get it. Well, there's a number of factors involved in that. Uh, first off, uh, when the Royals uh, left Cincinnati and became the Kansas City Omaha Kings, they, they really limped out of the city. Uh, the Royals were allowed to start their first season, the 1957-58 season, uh, with eight straight home games. And so they had some very strong early crowds. But unfortunately, um, that's really where uh, their initial success ended. Uh, they had a skein of injuries in their first season. Um, and as you know, um, uh, that season ended uh, very uh, badly. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and then uh, after that, uh, heading into the next two seasons, um, they were somewhat rudderless for a while. Um, they, they were a young team. Um, they uh, had a, a worn-out coach. Um, they actually ended up doing a Western tour with the Minneapolis Lakers that touched some cities in the West. And uh, they had a couple of 19-win seasons, and uh, they they really hit rock bottom. They had a number of games that failed to draw even 1,000 fans uh, to Cincinnati Gardens. So they were in dire straits by uh, 1960. So let's let's talk about some of the stars of those early teams that – help the Royals um, establish an identity. Uh, Jack Twyman, Clyde Lavalette, and Maurice Stokes. And Lavalette, he was a heck of a player. He was actually inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in, I think it was 1988. And he Mm -hmm. played for the Royals just that one season. Why only one year? A year in which uh he was averaging... 23 points and over 12 rebounds a game. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and I know it may startle uh, some people to know uh, just how night and day different it was back then, but the Royals uh, had lost money uh, for their first three years that they were in the city. And uh, Lavalette, um, uh, fairly enough, expected and asked for a raise that uh, the Royals simply couldn't afford to give him. Uh, the team was decimated in 1958, and they simply couldn't afford to pay him. So they traded him to somebody who could pay him in return for f- the rights to five players. And were those five players players worthy of starting? Did they make up for the loss of such one good player? Well, um, of those who actually bothered to report, um, they did end up, believe it or not, with Wayne Embry. 
So uh, he ended up, uh, and he was a reluctant arrival himself. There were two guys who looked at the situation and said, you know, I don't think there's any money here. I'm better off playing somewhere else. There was still an Eastern League at that time that paid players. And and the Royals and, and some of the NBA teams were actually on their par financially. So um, they uh, they got refused by some players, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but Ambry was right there in the state, and uh, the team was close enough to him, and uh, they were able to talk him into into coming to camp. So it actually worked out. Sure, sure. And what about Jack Twyman? He gained entrance into the Hall of Fame in 1983, and he mm-hmm. spent his entire career. At least I think he did with the with the Royals franchise. Tell he us did. about his game and how important a figure in Royals history he was. Well, he's a huge uh, story in Royals history. I mean, uh, if there's a single person that you can tie the Royals coming from Rochester to Cincinnati to, he's that guy. He was the local star. He was actually a part of the players group that suggested a game in Cincinnati for the team. Um, as a player, he probably had the best jump shot in the NBA for years. He was a, a, a terrific shooter, uh, the kind of shooter who, who would be a three-point bomber today. Um, he's, uh, he went six foot six, um, and he really carried the team through two of these very brutal seasons. He was the single draw on, on a losing team, and he scored a lot of points to try and create headlines for the Royals. He was very important to the team. And he was important for another reason. And and that's, or at least remembered for another reason. And that has to do with Maurice Stokes. Now, Maurice only played three years. His first two were with the Royals when they played in Rochester. And his final year was with the Royals in Cincinnati. Tell us about his game what kind of player he was, and then we're going to get into what happened. Well, Amari Stokes was actually um, um, something of a cutting-edge player for the mid-1950s. He played uh, what you would call today a playground-style game, and uh, he could play uh, most of the positions on the floor uh, in in the 1950s, if, if you went six foot seven, you had enough height to, to play some minutes at center. And he went about 235, 240 pounds. So, so he was a, a strong athlete. But he had ball handling skills. Uh, he had the ability to defend uh, most of the positions on the floor. He was a, just a, a great athlete who could crash. Uh, for rebounds, he was, I think, the only real rebounder in the league who had him was Bill Russell, who was uh, a, a tremendous leaping athlete. So Stokes was uh, just an amazing uh, player. He might have even been the best player in the league at one point. And, and if you could, if you had to think of a player who's playing today or recently to help paint a little bit more of a picture of just how good or what kind of player Maury Stokes was, who could you compare him to? Well, it's not an exact match. 
but one player that comes to mind is LeBron James. He had that wow. kind of versatility. Uh, Stokes was not a shooter. He didn't have a perimeter shooting game. He was not a strong free throw shooter, but he had everything else. Mm-hmm. He was a, a, a tremendous athlete. Mm-hmm. Of course, one of the biggest events in Royals history is also one of the most tragic in NBA history, the horrific injury that Maurice Stokes suffered. Tell us what happened, and then tell us about the extraordinary relationship between Stokes and Twyman. Well, really, it's this is the center story of the Cincinnati leg of the franchise, honestly. Right, and, 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 in and my, right in the first year. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and um, it, it's a, a remarkable story of the two players, but um, who, in fact, weren't very friendly. Uh, when the Royals relocated to Cincinnati, they were really the only two stars the team had, honestly. And one was uh, the big rebounder who could pass the ball, and the other one was the great jump shooter. But the truth of the matter is is that they didn't have very much in common. Even though they were both from Pittsburgh, they just were completely different kinds of guys. And um, the Royals were were finishing the 1957-58 season, you know, in tough shape. And uh, they had one more game left to play to conclude uh, the regular season. The playoffs had all been decided. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, the worst stop in the league, especially during the winter, was Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, it could could just be brutal up there, brutal Mm -hmm. cold. Mm-hmm. So they went up there to play the Lakers, who were sort of like the slap shot NBA team. If, if you're familiar with the movie, <laughs> I know the slap. They were sure, just the handsome brothers. <laughs> oh, they were. They were just brutal. You went to the basket, you might get tackled. I mean, that's how. That's what they were like. And is this and at a because- time when they had George Mikan? Uh, no, this was after Mikan had okay, left, and okay. that team was in themselves in very dire straits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, the guys that they had left just weren't that good. They had a couple of good guards, but their big guys weren't very good. And they were on their way to a 19-win season. So it was really brutal up there. Mm. And and that was a factor in what happened to Stokes. And it, it wasn't a deliberate thing because I think they just treated everybody like that because everybody beat them. But uh, there was some midair contact uh, in the first half, and Stokes crashed to the court, and he hit his head, which today, um, you know, would be concussion protocol, and they would whisk the guy to the locker room, and you you might not see him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But back then, uh, none of that kind of stuff existed. The NBA was practically a hockey league with tennis shoes. Huh. And the the extent of the medical exam was, you know, t- was to use smelling salts to help revive him and then to ask him <sighs> if he was okay. And, and then he was no different than any other player in the league in this respect. So he actually went to the bench and sat there for a while, you know, after hitting his head. 
And then eventually he told the coach, Bobby Wanzer, that he, he was, uh, he was okay to go back in. And, uh, he was, he was actually had kind of a chip on his shoulder because of how he had just gotten roughed up and he ended up having a very good game. He was the game's high scorer and, and helping the Royals win that finale on the road. And then what happened? Well, the playoffs, uh, you know, again, in a time with, you know, no luxury whatsoever, uh, started three days later. And so what the team did is they took a train to Detroit um, to, to play the Pistons in game one. And, the, and I think the game was held at the Olympia there, which mm-hmm. is the old, one of the older uh, barn-like arenas that the league had in a number of cities back then. Right. And the Pistons weren't drawing very well yet either. It was a very fledgling time for the NBA. And uh, the game that they played there, uh, the Royals relied on their star, their key star, Stokes, very heavily. He played um, almost 40 minutes in the game, uh, but he was clearly uh, subpar. He was clearly not feeling well. And uh, there was also a flu running around the team at that time. So they had a number of players who were sick. And so the initial suspicion was that Stokes also had this bug because uh, Jim Paxson, one of the players that he roomed with, was devastated by the flu at this time. The Royals were like playing with like seven or eight guys in this game, which they lost. And then afterwards, uh, uh, he was in terrible shape. And they just basically asked him, you know, can, can you get on the airplane back to Cincinnati? We'll get you to a doctor. And he agreed. He got on the plane. Probably one of the worst things he could have done. Yes, sir. I believe so. Uh, but, you know, there was a, a real learning curve in the league back then. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it ended up being a horrific decision. So what happened next? Well, the story on the plane um, was really uh, an amazing situation, uh, which again involved Twyman, and <clears throat> not deliberately. Uh, everybody is sleeping on the plane because the next playoff game in Cincinnati starts at one in the afternoon. So they're flying out of Detroit, and it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night. They have to sleep on the plane, they have to land in Cincinnati, and then they have to play at one. This is the way the league was back then. Wow. So they're exhausted and they're sleeping. So at some point, you know, the plane hits an air pocket, that kind of thing. And uh, Twyman woke up for a second and he just sort of looked around, you know, a a dark cabin of sleeping players. And catching his eye was Stokes, who, as he quickly saw, appeared to be having convulsions. Oh boy. The very, very startling thing. So he went over and checked him out and um, immediately everybody, you know, was woke up to the situation that he was involved in. And in fact, that's what he was doing. And he was lapsing in and out of consciousness. Wow. And they, um, they made the decision to continue in the air to Cincinnati. Oh no. Um, 
which uh, is a decision that certainly has been debated and was debated then. He was bad enough looking at the time, the story goes, that the players implored uh, the leaders of the aircraft to land immediately for Stokes to, to receive medical attention. Mm-hmm. And on the plane is the owner of at least one of the two teams, uh, Lester Harrison, mm-hmm. and and also reportedly the commissioner of the NBA. Oh, boy. So they're part of this decision. I mean, this is a, a, a helpless player who needs medical attention. So they continued, you know, with aircraft being the way that they, it was back then, for another hour in the air with a player uh, who was obviously sick and uh, a stewardess who was giving him oxygen. Oh, and he was lapsing in and out of consciousness. And it was uh, a, a tremendous scene that uh, the player's presence certainly never forgot. Sure, sure. Unfortunately, the story does not end there. It gets worse. Tell us yeah, what happens next. Well, when they landed in Cincinnati, uh, they took him straight to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which is in Covington, Kentucky. And uh, at that time, it was sort of, well, he's not available. He's got a mystery illness. Hopefully, he'll get better. Uh, the, the team was absolutely drained from this experience, and they had to play at 1 o'clock. And the Pistons just, they mowed them down uh, pretty easily. They won the game by 20 points. And that was the first playoff game hosted in Cincinnati for the league. Right, and, and, and this it, team is physically and emotionally drained. Yeah, completely. And uh, the turnout was... It, uh, much lower than expected, and it was it was a disaster. But um, Stokes ended up staying in that hospital um, for months, um, and in fact would never spend another day in his life where he wasn't in a hospital. Ugh. And he and Twyman were teammates, but yeah, they're they're teammates. Twyman sees what's what happens on the plane and ultimately does something I'm sure no one expected. Tell me about the relationship of Jack Twyman and and Maurice Stokes after this happened. Well, yeah, it's 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 a great story. Uh, Here's where the story actually starts to turn good. But uh, Twyman is actually the one player on the team who lives in the city. He went to school at the University of Cincinnati, and he worked there professionally. He sold insurance for Aetna. Hmm. So he had an insurance background. And um, the team wasn't really doing anything for Stokes yet. Uh, The team was in, in a tremendous upheaval at this point. The Royals were actually for sale. Uh, for some six or eight weeks during this period. Mm-hmm. So the entire franchise is somewhat rudderless. And Stokes is in this hospital bed, and they're treating him um, as, as best as they can, you know, by the terms of 1958. And uh, his costs are mounting, and his family can't pay them, uh, with health care being what it was at that time. Mm-hmm. So 
<clears throat> Stokes looked into the situation, and one of the first things he did was uh, gain an authorization to tie the player's bank account to his medical expenses. Hmm. And in order to do this, he uh, he had to legally adopt or become the guardian of this hospitalized player. Wow. And, and Stokes at this time uh, couldn't speak. He was a, uh, uh, a quadriplegic. He couldn't move any of his limbs. He could blink. That's what he could do. And all this from falling on a basketball court and hitting his head. And then, well, and then, and then a plane ride. Well, yes, sir. Uh, there's still a suspicion that a, a virus of some kind played a part in this. That in his weakened state, um, he suffered a kind of brain infection or an encephalitis that hmm. played a uh, a big part in uh, his condition. And the truth of the matter is, is that even to this very day, people don't really know what happened to this guy. Wow. So Twyman becomes his legal guardian and mm -hmm. basically cares for this guy the rest of his life. Yeah, for uh, certainly for a good portion of it. And, and if he doesn't care for him directly, he gets him into the hands of people who do. Um, he files a workman's compensation claim for Stokes. Uh, he becomes a, uh, a charity fundraiser uh, voice for Stokes. Uh, they create an off-season uh, all-star game uh, to be played up in the resort country of New York State. Uh, Kutcher's mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that is a, just a, a who's who of basketball stars came out and played for free and to raise donations for this fallen star. It was really an, an incredible story. What's why did for him. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, Maury Stokes lost his battle with whatever happened. Uh, I think it was in 1970, uh, a sad mm -hmm. day, a sad day. Oh, no doubt about it. Um, the guy spent a lot of time in bed, and the heart is also a muscle. So uh, his heart uh, actually gave out on him at that point. But he, he never really remarkably recovered from what happened to him. He gained some use of his hands, um, his left hand more than his right. He regained a small portion of his speech and mobility, but he was he had been wrecked by what had happened to him whatever it was. And, and that really, um, one of the sad, one of the sad situations about, about this is the fact that, like you said, this is one of the biggest events in the history of the Cincinnati Royals. And that's part of the Royals legacy. What an awful legacy to have. Oh yeah, it was it was a real bomb in in the important early years of the team, right? And um, to some degree, they never really recovered from it, right? All right, let's 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 talk about basketball again, uh, mm -hmm. despite the fact that that is one of the biggest stories in the history of the Cincinnati Royals. And let's get back to Twyman, certainly a unique individual. Again, he grew up in Pittsburgh, as you had mentioned, mm -hmm. played his college ball in Cincinnati goes out, uh, uh, becomes a member of the Rochester Royals. And you sort of said that some of the players 
uh, uh, might have played somewhat of a role in getting the team to Cincinnati. Did is that a fact? Did did Jack oh, Twyman yeah. play any role in the decision, or at least the suggestion of the Royals oh, yeah. relocating from Rochester to Cincinnati? Oh yeah, in 1956, um, he had emerged as. Uh, probably the team's biggest, most marketable star. Stokes was the best player, but Twyman was a very saleable star for the game at that time. Mm-hmm. And he he was a very intelligent guy. I had the opportunity to talk to him over the phone in 2010. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even then, uh, he was very intelligent. And uh, uh, a great business student, uh, a four-year guy, uh, just really sharp. And uh, so he, he saw a situation with the Royals being as they were, and he knew that a game in Cincinnati uh, would be an improvement on some of the crowds that were getting in Rochester. It was, uh-huh. a, it was uh-huh. an idea that came to him and the players pretty easily. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Jerry, the NBA draft. Now, it was set up a little differently back then than it is today. And for the Royals, the NBA's territorial draft, I think, proved to be quite rewarding. Their second mm-hmm. and third years in Cincinnati, they weren't that good. They won just 19 games each year. But with a territorial draft, they wound up with two studs, Oscar Robertson and Jerry Lucas. So tell us about the territorial draft and just how rewarding it was for Cincinnati. Well, uh, for that team, I, it was probably more rewarding than any other team of that time. Um, the Philadelphia Warriors did pretty good with it too. That was the team that first created the rule in the mm-hmm. mid-1950s, and it was the, it was designed to obtain Wilt Chamberlain, but they got some other players also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia was a real basketball city back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, for the Royals, it was, um, it was uh, a reassurance kind of factor that the franchise was going to continue in the city. That's how bad the team was for a while. Mm-hmm. And so to, to slot the rights of Robertson and Lucas to the city and even some of the Cincinnati Bearcat players that came after them. I mean, that was important to stabilize a franchise that was recovering from what had happened to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If they were a championship caliber team at that time, would they still have had an opportunity to draft Oscar and Jerry? Was that the way it was there in your territory? You get them, or would have there have would there have been other? arrangements made where they might not have been able to get Oscar and Jerry. I'm trying to understand that if you were a really good team, were you still awarded territory, you know, uh, uh, territory picks? Well, believe it or not, um, it was a cut and dried thing. Wow. Uh, They were very upset about Lucas uh, because they thought that he might play basketball in another state and there were a number of players that were very, uh, another, a number of teams that were very interested in him mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. out of his, his tremendous high school career. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the, uh, Royals were, were very serious about both players and yeah, it was cut and dried. 
And, and in Lucas's case, uh, he joined a team that was ready to win a championship immediately. It was a remarkable time. Did he go to the ABA first? Or, or well, I guess it wasn't an ABA, but did he play someplace else? Or, or what was I, – I vaguely remember reading something where he played for another league or another team, or did, did he come straight out of college and play for the Royals? Well, they wanted him to. Believe it or not, that was actually discussed at one point. And, and that's more, that says more about the Royals' desperation than it, than it did about Jerry's remarkable popularity when he was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he went to Ohio State. He was a very serious student, and he was, uh, he was determined to, to get uh, outstanding grades and a business degree. Mm-hmm. And then um, he wasn't going to play professional basketball at all. Um, and the Royals made a very standard offer to him, which he declined. Hmm. But uh, the the city of Cleveland uh, was being uh, sort of pulled into a new circuit that was coming together at that time called the American Basketball League. Mm-hmm. And that league was run by Abe uh, Saperstein, who mm. ran the Harlem Globetrotters. Sure. And he had wanted an NBA franchise for Los Angeles. And the NBA uh, ended up seeing the Lakers move out there from Minneapolis. And so he was pretty upset about that. And forming his own league was his idea of revenge. <laughs> and, and so he uh, he wanted to have uh, enough teams and enough big cities of his own. And in uh, 1962, um, the NBA had nine teams. And this new league, the American Basketball League, had eight. And Cleveland at that time was one of the 10 largest cities in the country. So the inclusion of that city was was serious. And uh, Jerry was signed by a young uh, owner named George Steinbrenner, <laughs> uh, the, the future New York Yankees legend. Right. He was uh, to play for uh, the, the big Cleveland shipping Pipers. magnet. Right. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So he, but went... he never played a game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as he signed, uh, there was uh, an effort to bring the Cleveland team into the NBA, and uh, the entire situation fell apart under uh, a hail of costs. And the team actually ended up folding without uh, ever playing a game with Jerry. Uh-huh. And he sat out for a year until uh, the Royals were able to land him for 1963. Wow. Oscar Robertson. I mean, what a difference one player can make, especially when it comes to basketball. Now, I think most of our audience knows of Oscar and some of his legend, but he was absolutely phenomenal. His first year was certainly a sign of things to come. I mean, he averaged nearly a triple-double. He scored 30.5 points a game. 10.1 rebounds a game, just under 10 assists a game at 9.7. He was the rookie of the year. Can you put into words just how good he was and how one player can turn around the fortunes of a team that was so far down on its luck? Well, from a talent standpoint, uh, as a skilled player, um, he, he doesn't look up to anybody, 
Um, he was uh, just a, a very intelligent guy, very tough guy. And uh, as a shooter, as a passer, as a rebounder, yeah, he was a good athlete. He had strong leadership skills. He came in and led immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even as a rookie, the Royals hired a new coach for him, uh, Charlie Wolf, who was coming out of the small college ranks. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two were practically peers. And, this, and, and in 1960, this was remarkable because mm-hmm. rookies didn't come into the league uh, like that, take uh, seizing a leadership role on a team and it and it wasn't a me first thing he just oscar was the kind of player who saw things that needed to be done and he went to work at, at, at making sure those things got done and when he arrived at the royals the team fell into a very quick organization and one of the most important things about the royals to know isn't just that oscar averaged a triple double for the first five years in the league which is amazing. It's incredible. Okay. Yeah. It's that he turned the Cincinnati Royals into the best shooting team in the history of the league to that time. Wow. And he had, he had Wayne Embry, Jack Twyman, Arlen Bockhorn, Adrian Smith, and Bob Boozer to work with. And these are all good players, certainly. But the way that the team became organized and you had this quarterback who could get everybody the ball. And and then he would say, now it's time for me to take over. I'm going to go to the basket. Now I'm going to put fouls on people and start making free throws. Now I'm going to use my outside shot. Now I'm going to post people up and use a hook shot. Robertson did everything. He was a great thinking player. Mm -hmm. And he truly made everyone else around him that much better. Here's, here's a cool thing I found while researching for, for today's show. Sure. I think most people know about how good a ball player Russell Westbrook is. He just averaged a triple double not too long ago. Sure. Michael Jordan had just 28 triple doubles during the course of his career. Of course, he was a different type of player, Mm -hmm. Um, We all think of Magic Johnson, who had many triple-doubles during the course of Mm -hmm. his career. He had 138, and I believe that is the second most all-time. 138. If I got Mm -hmm. this right, Oscar Robertson had 181 triple-doubles during the course of his career. I mean, just absolutely phenomenal. He was he was a stud, no doubt about it. Well, those are the ones they counted. In, in the early 1960s, assists were, were counted differently. And it, it's a funny thing because it was a wild time in the league. It was a racehorse era. And so there were a lot of uh, teams shooting the ball within eight or ten seconds. Hmm. And so there were a lot of points. There were a lot of rebounds. But there weren't a lot of assists because you only got an assist if the player caught the ball and shot and it went in, I mean, as soon as there was a dribble, you didn't get the assist. And so, ah, that, uh, very interesting. So, so the, the truth of the matter is, is that Robertson had far more than that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I wonder if someone will ever do the research. If if footage exists of every game, if they'll ever do the research and go back 
They've done it in other sports. Well, uh, the NBA in the 1950s probably doesn't quite have the resources yeah. that other professional sports have, and I, I think that would be a pretty tough project. Yeah, yeah. What did he mean to the gate? Did When he got to the Royals, did he mean anything to more fans coming out to see them play? Well, it, it's interesting you say that, because the very first game that the Royals hosted with Robertson was also the very first game played by a team called the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, wow. And it was played at Cincinnati Gardens. And uh, the the crowd was so big that it was a a record turnout uh, for a home opener at that time for the Royals. And it was about like 8,500 people. Wow. Wow. So that was actually big stuff at the time. Sure. uh, It went, it went up from there. They had, um, they had Will Chamberlain and the Philadelphia Warriors in a couple late, uh, couple of weeks later, and that was over 10,000. These were the kinds of crowds that they were hoping that uh, a fresh star would generate. And Robertson really delivered. Yeah, he, he sure delivered did. some big crowds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he delivered in many ways. They went 33-46 and 46 his first year there. They missed the playoffs, but then... They went on a run of six straight years in the playoffs, and I think their best season was 63-64 when they went 55-25. and It's also the year Jerry Lucas joined the team, but once again, they came up short like everyone else did to the Boston Celtics. You just couldn't beat that team. Tell us about that season. What made 63-64 so special, and how devastating was it not to beat Boston? Well, um, it was their biggest season, I think. Um, certainly one of their two biggest seasons. Um, what made it uh, really big for the fans in the city was the arrival of Lucas, who was a, a player who just had a really rare degree of popularity in those days. I don't know that there was a more popular player in the game based on his career at Ohio State and and some of the international ball he played. And, of course, he had played at Middletown. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And th- those had, had seen some huge crowds for him. But uh, they plugged him in, and uh, they sort of rearranged the team a little bit to take advantage of his ability as a, a rebounder and as a shooter. And at one point, uh, they played... Uh, and won about 75% of their games over four months uh, in this new offense that that they worked with him. And um, they were, in fact, uh, uh, they beat the the Celtics a number of times during that year and ended up winning the season series. But um, the Royals were just a, a very funny organization. Um, who, who thought more about dollars and dimes than they did about building a championship team. And uh, the Celtics were run by Red Auerbach, a, a real basketball legend. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in 1963-64, the Royals had a uh, first-year coach, Jack McMahon, mm-hmm. and he was the savviest basketball guy in the organization. Hmm. And and he he also didn't control the team's purse strings. Uh, they traded Bob Boozer that year, even though they knew they needed him. 
uh, or would need him later for the playoffs. And mm-hmm. Those those kinds of decisions sunk the Royals. Hmm. And and it was like the following season, sixty four sixty five. Um, they were stunned by the Sixers in the playoffs, and mm-hmm. I think that's when the team was sold. How, talk about how trying a time the 64-65 season was and, and how this was maybe, in a way, the beginning of the end of the Cincinnati Royals. Well, 64-65, uh, Sports Illustrated, I believe, actually predicted that the team would win the title. And they get so, bounced in the first round. Well, yeah. Well, they had they were just overrun with injuries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Lucas missed a whole month, uh, but they lost. Uh, Robertson had a really bad foot and and ended up uh, just limping in the playoffs and they, in big minutes. Ambry mm-hmm. uh, was hurt. Twyman and uh, Adrian Smith were both hurt. And so they just they, they weren't able to chase the uh, the Celtics quite as closely as they had the previous season. Mm-hmm. And then and then I think this is when the Harrisons sold a team as well, and they sold it to guys by the name of Max and Jeremy Jacobs. So I have a couple questions here. Why did the Harrisons decide to sell the team? Well, yeah. Uh, let me let me correct a couple things. Uh, the Harrisons got out in 1958 after their first season. Ah, okay. And they, they were preparing to leave even uh, before the, the team played their one playoff game uh, that year because they had lost money in Cincinnati and, and they, had, they had felt um, shortchanged on the decision to move there. Mm-hmm. And um, what, the team ended up being bought by um, a kind of uh, local – uh, ownership organization that um, had a number of hands in it. <clears throat> it was based around uh, Thomas Wood, who ended up with the controlling share of stocks in Cincinnati Gardens. And uh, he actually died during the hmm. 1963 playoffs, hmm. and there was no owner for uh, a little while. And wow. it ended up being bought by uh, a remarkable sports figure that more people should know about. And that was Lewis Jacobs, uh, the great uh, concessionaire. Ah. So, so how does it, does, where do Max and Jeremy come in? Were they not the owners at some point? Well, Max and Jeremy are the sons of, of Lewis. Okay. Okay. And uh, Louis took over the team in 1963 and then he himself passed away in 1968, and uh, he left a huge, uh, profitable organization for his two sons. And uh, uh, those were divvied up. Jeremy got pretty much everything he wanted, and uh, Max got what was left. And one of the things that was left were the Cincinnati Royals. <laughs> Hey, you can have this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like that, yeah. And he knew absolutely nothing. He didn't know a basketball from a pumpkin. I mean, he had no idea. And then ultimately, he sold it to a, a group of people from Kansas City. Is that how that worked? Yes, that's correct. And and it, and his own general manager was part of that ownership group. Uh, uh, 
uh, Joel Axelson. But did they try to keep the team? Were they was there talk of keeping the team in Cincinnati as opposed to relocating to Kansas City? Absolutely none. None. Absolutely so, none. So they were they were getting out. And wow, yeah, wow, yeah, definitely. What about the coaches? When you look back at the history of the Cincinnati Royals, it was like a revolving door of coaches. I think I counted six during their 15 years with McMahon lasting the longest. Why the turnover? Well, uh, the first coach, Bobby Wanzer, was a Rochester Royals guy. And so uh, when his boss, Lester Harrison, was selling the team and getting out, he was ready to leave too. And, and the team was, frankly, just terrible in their second year. I mean, mm-hmm. they were just dreadful. So it was easy for him to be to get fired. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, what they did back then is that they had next to no money at this point. So they went to the bench and they looked for a popular veteran player. And they said, you know, can you be the coach for a while? And and Tom Marshall <laughs> said, yeah, I'll be the coach. And he ended up being the coach of the team for two years until they actually hired one. Oh, man. I want to go back to ownership for a second. I'm going to jump around a little here, I guess. Um, so the, so Max Jacobs uh, sells the team. Did he just have no interest in the team? Why? Was it was the product on the floor that bad and they were making no money? Why the reason to sell the team? Well, this is probably the second biggest or, or at least one of, one of the biggest stories on the team is that um, – well, uh, the NBA was in a funny spot uh, at this time, which is 1971. And uh, they're looking to merge with the ABA to stop the spiraling of salaries. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what they're doing to plead their case is to say, we're losing so much money, you got to approve the merger. And and the, the players union at that time was led by Oscar, Oscar Robertson. And I was going to get yeah. to that. So this is a really interesting thing because yes, there's the court case of Robertson versus the NBA, the right. merger between the ABA and the NBA. Uh, uh, yeah. So tell us about this whole situation because it certainly affected Oscar Robertson as well. Oh, well, and this is uh, part of why his career is so remarkable because it, it doesn't just include what he did at every level of the game, which by itself is just mind-blowing. But it, it also includes what he did as the cutting-edge president of the NBA Players Union. Hmm. And uh, with the merger in the air at this time, the, the players are saying, uh, of course, that they don't want the mergers because, you know, just like uh, the football guys had been, mm-hmm. They wanted to see the the salaries up. They wanted mm-hmm. to see, they wanted to be able to play the two leagues off of each other. Right. So the NBA had to prove their case, and and what they did is they they asked the owners to open up their books to show how desperate you know their financial situation was. And it was at this point that people got to look at of all the teams. <laughs> what the NBA, uh, what the Cincinnati Royals had going on and the Jacobs portfolio <laughs> was incredible. It was, it crossed, it crisscrossed the country. 
with concession sales at, at all kinds of uh, sporting venues uh, all across the country, hotels, dog racing tracks, horse racing tracks. <laughs> And can't, uh, can't can't plead uh, uh, poverty with all this. That, exactly right. And what was really important also is that they found that in, in examining some things that the Jacobs had um, what you could call brushes with what professional sports at that time called uh, unsavory organized elements. Oh, boy. So uh, they were doing concession work at racetracks, and racetracks are, are gambling venues. And uh, yep. a number of the venues at that time had ties to organized crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that led to uh, some, some serious investigation into the Jacobs family. And frankly, it's my opinion that this was the driving force of pushing the team out of Cincinnati to Kansas City. Interesting. So they sell the team, the Jacobs sell the team to a group of guys from Kansas City, and after the 70-71 season is when the Royals move to Kansas City. However, before they go there, they name Bob Cousy as coach of the Cincinnati Royals. And I want to just cover this a little bit because it's really interesting. At one point, this guy, who's one of the greatest to ever put on a pair of sneakers in the NBA, he suited up for a few games. But he was he jealous at all of Oscar Robertson? I mean, they he coached Robertson for one year, and and after that one year is when Oscar ends up in Milwaukee, and I'm I'm sure it has something to do as well with this lawsuit. But why did the two of them not get along, or what was it that Kuzi didn't like about Oscar? What happened there? I mean, how do you get rid of Oscar Robertson? Well, just just to speculate on that a little bit, Kuzi uh, had a remarkable relationship with Red Auerbach in Boston, the mm -hmm. coach and the star. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thing is, though, is when Robertson came into the league, um, Auerbach was was quite taken with him, very struck by him as as a revolutionary player, which Oscar definitely was. Mm -hmm. And uh, at one point, uh, Auerbach was telling people that there wasn't another player in the league that he feared more as an opponent than Oscar Robertson. Mm -hmm. And it's because Robertson was completely unpredictable. He could beat you in so many different ways. Uh, everybody knew what Will Chamberlain was going to do, but you had no idea mm -hmm. how Robertson was going to beat you that night. And he, and he certainly was going to try to do that. And so uh, in the middle of all this, these kinds of comments is Bob Cousy, the player, witnessing this kind of adulation. And I, I think it did get to him. Mm -hmm. that he was surpassed by this other player. And, um, and not only there, but even in the players' union, uh, a lot of people don't know that Bob Cousy started the NBA players' union. Oh, that, man. That was, yeah, he started it. And Robertson is just beating him every which way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he, he, and yeah, to different heights completely. So, yeah, I'm sure that that was a factor. And 
but uh, maybe the biggest thing was the Royals management themselves because they really wanted to control Robertson in the late sixties. And um, they really just uh, struggled to do so. And so they brought in a guy that uh, they felt could take a, a very authoritarian approach with Robertson. Hmm. So that was definitely part of Cousy's job. And what about Jerry Lucas? I, I, from what I can find, I don't think Cousy was all that enamored with Jerry Lucas as well. What happened there? Well, Cousy was a funny guy. Uh, after he retired as a player in 1964, he went into college coaching. And he just completely stepped out of the NBA uh, limelight, other than um, some TV and radio work he did. Mm-hmm. And it, it was mostly, you know, they're just asking Bob to be Bob, you know. Uh, they weren't asking him to be an expert on the league, and he really wasn't. The truth mm-hmm. of the matter is, is he didn't know very much about Jerry Lucas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in 1969, Lucas had a lot of miles on him as a player. He was a very old 29. And Cousy was trying to remake the Royals into a young running team. And Lucas simply didn't fit the mold of the team that he was trying to create. Mm-hmm. It became a very disrespectful situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so Robertson, well, I guess Lucas leaves first, helps the New York Knicks win their first ever championship. And then, and then Robertson leaves and goes to Milwaukee and helps them win the NBA championship. And Cincinnati is left with nothing. How much do you think might Cousy have, how much do you think Cousy might have contributed to the downfall of and the end of the Cincinnati Royals. Well, he was huge. He and the general manager, uh, Joe Axelson, um, engineered um, a a perfect collapse for that team. Uh, They made reckless trades. They, they blew draft picks. They had two superstar players and then, and both of them ended up being dealt in just ridiculous trades. Yeah, they didn't get much in return for either of them. No, not at all. And uh, the the effect of, of the Milwaukee championship and the Knicks championship was definitely felt locally. Um, uh, they could see that, you know, uh, their, theirs was a, uh, a team that wasn't really worthy of a lot of local support. Yeah, so so I, I've got to imagine uh, attendance – must have dwindled somewhat after they jettisoned Lucas, after they jettisoned Robertson, and then along comes a football team, the Cincinnati Bengals. And, and of course, the Reds are one of the better teams in baseball. And Cincinnati was also getting ready for some hockey, too. Did, did the mm-hmm. Reds, the Bengals, did... Did hockey, did any of that play any role in the Royals leaving as well? Oh, definitely, no question. Uh, The Bengals impacted them immediately, especially in the first half of the season. Paul Brown was a... A legend. Yeah, a very strong presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the big red machine was starting at that time with Johnny Mm -hmm. Bench and Pete Mm -hmm. Rose. Mm -hmm. And so that was beginning to happen. And uh, the Royals just seemed to be going sideways. 
Uh, mm-hmm. They were a 500 team at best. And uh, there, there just didn't seem to be a future with them. And, and people could sense that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, the ironic thing, they didn't last in Kansas City for very long either. Do you know why that is? Well, uh, the team went uh, from 1972 until 1985 in Kansas City. Um, they uh, they had some uh, some difficulty gaining some success with teams. The NBA actually entered a very lean era in the late. 1970s where a lot of teams didn't make a lot of money mm-hmm. yeah they were actually looking at a number of teams that you know were uh, either going to fold or they were looking for for places to move to and uh the kansas city uh kings were actually saved by a billionaire real estate guy out in california and that's why they ended up moving to Sacramento. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He got a great deal on them. Mm-hmm. They are one of the oldest teams in the NBA, or one of the oldest franchises in the NBA. I mean, you have the Warriors, the Sixers, the Knicks, who are one of the three original teams and have only won two NBA championships. Obviously, mm-hmm. the Celtics, who have won, you know, more than anybody and mm-hmm. what a lot of people might not realize is the golden state warriors are actually one of the original three nba teams uh mm-hmm. they were known as the philadelphia warriors at first and we know that they're winning championships lately in the long long history of the sacramento kings kansas city kings cincinnati royals rochester royals one championship that's that's incredible. one NBA title. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's crazy. And they should have <laughs> won in Cincinnati with Lucas mm-hmm. and Robertson. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. People did feel that way. And and when the team fell short, um, yeah, that, that was a definite negative. During research for your book, what surprised you most about the Royals' time in Cincinnati? What did you learn about the team that made you take note? What was that one thing where you went, wow, I had no idea? Well, you you look for, for positives, uh, you know, in a story like this. There's a lot of drama with this team. Sounds uh, the like ownership it. situation, uh, the Maurice Stokes situation. Um. I was really impressed with the story around the 1966 NBA All-Star game that was held there. Mm. Tell and, us a little bit about that. Well, it was it, it's maybe the, the biggest positive event for the team. Uh, they had three All-Stars in that game at a time when uh, the NBA had uh, nine teams. So... You had Robertson, who had been the MVP of the All-Star Game in 1964, was really the greatest All-Star Game player ever. And then you had Lucas, who had been All-Star Game MVP in 1965, probably still the most popular player in the game at that point. Mm. And then you had Adrian Smith, who was named sort of at the last minute as a reserve guard. Hmm. And he's he's just happy to to be in the league. He's actually a good shooter, but this was a guy who never expected to even play professional basketball. Hmm. And just he's a uh, really a remarkable story. And um, 
he ends up coming off the bench for the East, and he ends up being the All-Star Game MVP in his only All-Star appearance wow. in his in his home city, Cincinnati wow. Gardens. So yeah, it was an amazing event for the uh, for him and for the team and the city. Maybe one time I'll have to do a little story about uh, Adrian Smith as well. That'd be that'd be pretty cool. Hey Jerry, the Royals left town almost fifty years ago. Did they leave any sort of legacy? Does anyone ever mention them? What about Oscar Robertson? Do they ever talk about what he did for the Royals, or is all the talk in the Cincinnati area? about the Bearcats and the fact that Oscar played for the Bearcats. And what's the legacy of the Cincinnati Royals? Well, um, Oscar wrote a book that came out, I believe, in like 2003. Uh, Wayne Embry wrote a book also. And these are very worthwhile reads. And uh, the Royals are sort of a, a, a portion of the story for both men. Embry had a tremendous managerial career. Mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of real uh, trailblazers, believe me. So the Royals are, are really a portion of, of the story for both. Um, uh, Lucas had a huge impact locally, but is really remembered more now today as a New York Nick yep. than as a Royal. Yep. So um, it's, it's funny. The team kind of went up in smoke in a, in a way. Um, there, there are occasional memories that are centered often around the all-star game. So each year the team sort of gets a plug there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then you start getting into, uh, some of the remarkable performers. Uh, one guy who isn't remembered enough, in my opinion, is Nate Archibald. He was tremendous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but. You know, there again is a player that isn't really very associated with that. No, city. you think of him with Buffalo and then later on with Boston. Mm-hmm. He was a Kansas City Omaha King, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it's uh, nobody in the city really wanted to touch the story, which is actually how it fell into my lap. You know, um, I was looking for a book on the team, and there wasn't one. Mm. And that was in 2008. And that's uh, 45 years after the team had left town. Right. So um, that's why I wrote one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where can people get a hold of your book? Uh, the book is available on Amazon, but uh, most of the chain uh, bookstores uh, can order it for you. Um, I've seen it at Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Uh, Amazon, it's definitely at. You can sort of flip through it there. And so uh, that's where I would go. Jerry, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me to talk about the Cincinnati Royals and and some of the interesting history about the team. And I would certainly love to have you back on again if you'd consider it. Oh, yeah, definitely. My pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Some teams, particularly in the NBA, just struggle to win championships. In fact, did you know, including the Royals, now the Sacramento Kings, of the 30 teams that make up the NBA, if my math is right, only 17 have ever won a championship. That's just over 50%. 
And that could be a part of the reason why the Royals, again, now the Sacramento Kings, left Cincinnati. They didn't contend for a championship during their final years there, and they were going up against the Reds, who were about to embark on a pretty impressive run of playoff appearances and championships. I mean, they had Johnny Bench and Tony Perez and Pete Rose, a solid team that was really ingrained in the city. The Bengals, who had only recently joined the NFL and the novelty of a good team in a great league with Paul Brown as its coach, that was pretty stiff competition. Plus, with the University of Cincinnati basketball and Louisville and Kentucky not that far away, the battle to put fannies in the seats was pretty tough. The last five years the Royals played in Cincinnati, they did not make the playoffs. Robertson and Lucas were no longer a part of the team. A sad end for a team that got off to such a great start in a city that, frankly, one would think was a prime spot for professional basketball. Thanks again to my guest Jerry Schultz, author of Cincinnati Basketball Royalty, A Brief History, a look back at 15 years of Cincinnati Royals NBA basketball, and I'm sure you could grab a copy of the book from Amazon. Next time, we'll take a look back at another long-forgotten basketball franchise, the Kentucky Colonels. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.